Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. Uh, Today's not going to be a Mother's Day sermon, okay? You'll find out why very quickly. (laughs) Uh, December 7th, 1941. That's where we're starting, okay? I felt like I had to wear a Hawaiian shirt in honor of my wife and then talk about Pearl Harbor in honor of my wife. It just sort of happened that way. But you know what happened on that day without me even telling you what happened on that day, right? You know that on that day, the naval base at Pearl Harbor was attacked by the Japanese. We know that. There are a, couple of, there are a handful of dates in our country's nearly 250-year history that we just say the date and we know what happened, and that's one of them. And what's interesting is on that day, beautiful, sunny Sunday morning, about 8 a.m., these naval officers are just doing their thing, waking up like normal, doing whatever they normally do, exactly when they're supposed to do it, living their life, and all of a sudden, they're attacked. Maybe in your life, you can relate to those kinds of moments. Maybe you look back in your life and you can see, you know, one day, life was normal and fine and everything was grand, and then all of a sudden, this thing happened out of nowhere and it just blew everything up. It destroyed the re- maybe, maybe years of your life. Maybe it changed everything for the rest of your life. But you were just kind of not aware of anything happening. It was just a total sneak attack in your life. Maybe you've had one of those moments. Maybe spiritually you've had some of those moments where you're just loving Jesus, serving Jesus, you know, doing my Christian duty, just living life, raising a family, and all of a sudden spiritual attack, boom knocks you from from nowhere, blindsides you, knocks you for a loop. You have no idea really where it came from and really for a while don't know what to do about it. Where do I go from here? How do I pick up the pieces? What's going on? There's just confusion, disorientation all around. As we continue our series, New Thing, we're going to see Peter and John face this kind of attack. And it is in a way physical, but it is very, very much a spiritual attack. And so we'll see as we get into Acts chapter 4, they're just living their life, doing their thing for Jesus, and all of a sudden, they face an attack. And so today, we're going to talk about what we do when the enemy attacks. We're going to talk about three truths that we can know or remember when the enemy attacks. Again, I know a big pump you up sermon for Mother's Day, but here we are. So let's read this passage. It's Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, and we're going to focus on these seven verses here this morning about what to do when the enemy attacks. Acts 4, verse 1. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests, the captain of a temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there is a resurrection of the dead. They arrested them, and since it was already evening, they put them in jail until morning. The next day, the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest. They brought in the two disciples and demanded, By what power or in whose name have you done this? 
So from these verses, if we get into Acts chapter 4, we're going to again look at three truths that we can remember when the enemy attacks. And so here's the first one. It's the obvious one, but it needs to be stated. We have to know, first of all, that the enemy will attack. Okay? Let's look at these first three verses again. We'll work through the passages a short one so we can read it twice. We'll be okay. Acts chapter 4, 1 through 3, while Peter and John were speaking to the people. So what's just happened in Acts chapter 3, we've been there for a few weeks. They're on their way to pray at the temple, and they see a lame man from birth who's sitting there begging for alms. They don't have any money to give them, but something in, the, in them, the Holy Spirit works through them, and they say, we don't have any silver or gold, but what we have, we give to you in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And so this lame man who's been lame from birth 40 years or more, is miraculously healed and gets up and walks, leaps, runs, dances, does the moonwalk, all that. It's not in the Bible. It's in my version, right? I'm assuming he did that. He's, he's healed miraculously by the power of Jesus. Then Peter takes this opportunity from this miraculous sign to then tell the people who have gathered, because this is going to get attention, right? People are going to be curious about what's happened. We know this guy. He's there every day, multiple times a day, and he's like, running around, jumping around, something's happened. So Peter sees the crowd coming in, and he tells them the power of Jesus healed this man, and the power of Jesus can heal you and change your life. He preaches the gospel to them. So while he's doing this, then we read right into Acts chapter 4, while Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priest, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. We'll talk about who those people are in a minute. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there is a resurrection of the dead. They arrested them, and since it was already evening, put them in jail until morning. The enemy will attack. Peter and John learned this quickly. Peter and John learned quickly here, if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to make certain enemies. They discovered that very quickly. And your enemies, what's odd about what happens here and when the enemy even will attack you as a follower of Jesus is it's odd because you're being attacked for a good thing. Peter and John, they've been used to heal this man. They're telling the good news and they're confronted by these people. It seems weird. It seems backward. No, no, we're not breaking the law. We're not doing bad things. We're not doing negative things. We're doing good work here and yet they are still confronted and attacked. Your enemies will try to undercut your faith, undercut what you're doing. It seems odd that they were just used in this powerful, positive way, but they were. So you, you might ask, and maybe they're asking, okay, who would attack us for this? Who would be crazy enough to do that? And why? What's their reasoning? What's their rationale for this? Well, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright gives a very interesting perspective here. I want to read it together for just a second. He says this. Wouldn't it be simply great news to know that God was alive and well and was providing a wonderful rescue operation through his chosen Messiah? Answer, not if you're already in power. Not if you were one of the people who had rejected and condemned that Messiah. And not if you strongly suspected this new movement was trying to upstage you, to diminish or overturn that power and prestige and take it for itself. Remember, Peter and John are just innocently living their lives, being powerfully used by the Holy Spirit, sharing the gospel, but other powers are at work to oppose them, to try to stop them. So it seems like an odd thing. It seems like a surprise, but really it shouldn't have been, and probably really in the back of their mind, they would have seen this coming at some point. 
Because what Jesus tells them, John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come, Jesus says, that they might have life and have it to the full. Jesus tells them what they're now experiencing firsthand in Acts chapter 4. There is a thief. There is an enemy, and he has a singular focus, a singular goal to destroy you. The enemy has a singular focus and singular goal to destroy you. He's not messing around. He's not playing games. He doesn't play fair. He declared war on Jesus a long time ago. And so if we're going to be on Team Jesus, he's automatically then by default declared war on you. Again, I know a big boost here on Mother's Day, but this is where we are, okay? This is Acts chapter 4. This is going to be good for us to know. This is going to help us, I think, even in the coming weeks and months, that we have an enemy, so we have to see him. We have to look for him. And that's what Peter says. Peter, who's here in Acts 4, later on in one of his letters, here's what he writes. 1 Peter 5.8, Peter says, Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. What's interesting about the context of 1 Peter 5 is he's talking to pastors and elders and church leaders here. So he is, I think, in one way saying, hey, you look out, you watch, be ready. There's an enemy, he's prowling, he's going to sneak attack, he's going to try to drop bombs you're not expecting, he's going to try to destroy your life, be looking for him. But in the context here, he's also talking to people in the church, leaders in the church, hey, look out for other people. Because he's after everybody who follows Jesus. We're all on equal footing here when it comes to the vulnerability of the attack of the enemy, and it will happen. You are facing an enemy. It isn't always obvious, and even like Peter and John here, it doesn't always make sense. Who's going to attack me if I'm just trying to live for Jesus I'm a mom trying to raise my family. You know, I'm a good citizen, and, and I, I'm trying to do the best I can. Like, who, who's going to try to undercut those efforts? Your enemy is going to try to undercut those efforts of the good work that you're doing. The enemy hates those good things that you're doing. The enemy hates the work that you're trying to push forward in your faith. The enemy hates that you're trying to develop a, a stronger faith. He hates that. And so he's going to do everything he can to steal, kill, destroy, and to devour you. So and as, as an aside here, this is why Christian connection is so important for us. This is why a community of faith, a church, is so important. Because what is the, what is the lion going to try to do to its prey? It's going to try to pull it out on its own. Because then it's vulnerable. The lion is going to get the antelope 80% of the time. Like once in a while, it's going to make a move and get out. Once in a while, it's quick enough, fast enough to escape. But that other four out of five times, it's not going to work out so well. And so that's why Christian community is so important. There's strength in numbers. So when there's an attack coming, we can be there for one another. When an attack does happen, we can be there to comfort, to, to help the healing process, to maybe guide, give direction, wisdom, encouragement. So it's important that we don't pull away from that support system or that community, but that we realize the importance of it. So again, I'll underscore this point, then we'll move on. Whether you realize it or not, or whether you've experienced yet, experienced it yet or not, you have an enemy ready to attack. So be ready. The second part of this, though, as we move on in Acts chapter 4, is a weird part, maybe. And it's this. The direction of the attack may surprise you. The direction of the attack may surprise you. 
We've already seen some of the people named in the first three verses. Let's look at or first four verses. Look at uh, verses five and six and see the rest of the people here, and then we'll talk about them for a second. So Acts 4, verses 5 and 6. The next day, so they've been in prison all night. The next day, the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest. So let's, going back to the first three verses, let's name the people who are present, who are opposing or attacking Peter and John. We have two high priests that are named. We have Annas and Caiaphas. So Annas is kind of the high priest emeritus, if you will. He's retired now, but he's very much got his fingers all over everything religiously that happens. And uh, his son-in-law, Caiaphas, is the sitting, acting high priest. He is the top of the top of the religious leaders of all of Israel. So he would be the one, if you go back to Exodus and the law, Caiaphas is the only person in the whole nation who can, on only one day of the year, enter the most holy place to make a sacrifice for Israel on the Day of Atonement. So this is a big deal. He's a high-ranking guy, a lot of power, a lot of clout. So we have two high priests here cornering, threatening Peter and John. We have the captain of the temple guard who does run the police, sort of, uh, but he's also second in command under the high priest. Then we have the council, probably the Sanhedrin, which is 70, including the high priest, 71 of the leading council. And then the Sadducees. So again, think for a second. It does seem a little odd that these religious leaders would oppose this religious work that's being done. Especially the, the less that you know about how the Bible works and the stories of the Bible, it would seem, okay, why are these religious dudes getting all upset with these other religious dudes? It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. It doesn't seem to compute why they would come against them. But actually, this is a theme that we see in Scripture. We see this over and over and over again. Let's look at a couple examples very quickly. So in the book of Genesis, we have this young man named Joseph. And Joseph is thrown into, uh, he's sold into slavery, right? And then after he serves as a slave for a while, he's then thrown into prison because of false accusations. And then, so for 20 years, he's either a slave or a prisoner until God miraculously exalts him to second in command over all of Egypt. But remember, who threw Joseph, in, who, who put him into slavery? Who sold him into slavery? His brothers. Probably didn't see that coming right? If he would have, he probably wouldn't have yapped so much about the dreams he had about them bowing down to him. So he didn't see that coming. It came from a weird direction, but it happened to Joseph. You go forward to 1 Kings, you have this mighty prophet named Elijah, and he's battling against an evil king and an evil queen. And they are corrupt, and they worship idols, and they are the most wicked people, some of the most wicked people in the history of the world, this evil king and queen. But which country does this king and queen rule over? Israel. They're his king and queen that are chasing him all over the country for years trying to kill him, that are opposing him. This came from an odd direction on the surface. Why would his own king and queen, why, why would they not want him to be the prophet of God? It doesn't seem to make any sense. Even Jesus obviously clearly dealt with this same issue. The attacks that came toward him came from an odd direction. There's one account where he goes into a certain kind of small town. He tries to do miracles there, but they have no faith in him, no belief in him, and they actually try to kick him out of town. So it even says, the Gospels record, he couldn't do many miracles in this certain town because of their unbelief. Now, which town was it that this happened to Jesus? His own hometown of Nazareth. You would think, that, again, I've said this before, you'd think they'd give him the key to the city. He's the biggest celebrity in the region. 
We would like elect him mayor of Nazareth if he wanted to run unopposed, no problem. But instead, the opposite happens. He's attacked by those closest to him. He doesn't maybe, well, he does because he's Jesus, sees it coming, but we maybe don't see why that makes any sense. Sometimes the direction of the opposition or attack may seem surprising in a way. And for Peter and John, you might think it's surprising, but honestly, if you know anything about the people that we'll talk about for a second, it's clearly obvious that they're going to do this. So we have two high priests here. Now you would think, again, high priests, they, they love God and they're going to honor God, baloney. They are two of the most evil, corrupt leaders you've ever heard of. So much so that they both help to run the illegal trial that gets Jesus condemned for blasphemy and then murdered. Caiaphas and Annas, his father-in-law, are the ones running this trial to execute Jesus. In one of the Gospels, Caiaphas, who's the high priest in Acts 4, about Jesus a few months ago, he even said they're plotting about how to get Jesus, and he's trying to justify their plan. He says, well, it's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to suffer. He's trying to cover his bases there and give reasons why it's okay that we're going to execute an innocent man. So they're, they're leading the charge here. So really, it's not a surprise that they're leading this attack. The captain of a temple guard, he's just kind of a puppet. He's just kind of following along. Uh, so he's not really, as far as we know, that big of a deal. But he didn't do a thing to stop them. There's no discussion where he says, hey, hey guys, should we like calm down? Like, is this a good idea? He just follows in line, goes along with them. Then we have the Sadducees. Now, this, you maybe have heard of the Pharisees. We talk about them a lot. The Sadducees are sort of a different sect of Jewish leaders, uh, usually rich, powerful people. And they, so their philosophy is this. They only adhere to the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's all they read and study. That's all that they accept. So that's why the Sadducees and Pharisees don't always get along. So when you see them teaming up against Jesus, you know something's off. Why would the Democrats and Republicans come together to attack this person? That person's probably awesome is what you should assume when that happens, okay? That's what happens. When Pharisees and Sadducees get along to conspire, something really wrong, really bad is happening. But here we just have the Sadducees who, again, because they only read the first five books of the Bible, they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Not even just they deny the resurrection of Jesus, they deny any resurrection from the dead ever. It's kind of like we obey the law for this life and then that's kind of it. And yet Peter and John are preaching resurrection of Jesus through Jesus. So that's not good for them. Uh, part of this already too is, is politically they're very much aligned with the Roman government. So now they, they play the part religiously. Like they'll go to synagogue and they'll read the scroll and they'll, they'll teach the people and make the people do the things that they won't do, but really they're in the pocket of Rome. And so whatever Rome wants to do, whatever they say goes, they're going to follow the political order of the day. And so when they see this movement spreading rapidly, when they see miraculous signs attracting thousands of people, they get concerned because Jesus, a couple months ago, was a big enough problem. And now we're multiplying to thousands of followers all of a sudden, maybe a few weeks or months. This is an issue. We've got to get control of this. So they try to corner Peter and John here in Acts chapter 4. All parties here are attacking. It may seem surprising, but not really. Maybe in your life, you face some sort of personal attack or spiritual attack from a direction that you didn't see coming. Sometimes the people that are closest to us in relationship are the ones that oppose us the most spiritually. 
We don't see it coming. It doesn't make any sense on paper, but you maybe have experienced that. Maybe even for you, it's been a spouse who you are trying to follow Jesus, but they, they just keep trying. What, what are you doing? Like they're just trying to denigrate your belief. They're trying to undercut your faith. They're trying to say, well, why are you so dedicated to that? And what good has Jesus ever done for you? And why do you go to that church? And why do you care about what the Bible says? And why, do you, why are you anti-science? And all that? Like even your spouse may say the most hurtful, cutting things to you in regards to your faith. You don't see it coming, and it's not fair, but maybe you've been there. Maybe for you it's been like your friends. You know, maybe, maybe you either became a Christian and you have this group of friends that aren't Christians and they just don't get it. They don't understand your obsession with Jesus. They don't understand why. What's the point? What are you doing? Maybe they'll say, you know, you used to be a lot of fun. And then you went serious about Jesus and now we can't stand you anymore. Or maybe they, tried, they exclude you without trying to tell you from your friend group. Because, just because of your dedication to your faith in Jesus. Maybe you've been there before. Maybe even your own family has turned their back on you because of your stand for Jesus. Maybe you have certain things that you believe in because the Bible you know, says this is how I'm to live, this is how I'm to see the world, and they don't see it that way. And so maybe even your own family has abandoned you because of your faith especially if you've come from a different faith background or tradition from your family or ancestry, that's going to be a hard one. And so maybe they're in that position where, yeah, we just can't associate anymore. No more Thanksgivings, no more Christmases. Maybe you've been cut out. Maybe you've been cut out of a will because you have put, taken a stand for Jesus and your family just can't get on board. So what this does, though, is it can lead to a lot of emotions. It can lead a lot of different ways, and many of them are not healthy. Because typically, that can lead to fear, which we'll get to in a minute. Or, or I would say uh, probably the closer the relationship and the attack comes, it can lead to a lot of anger, resentment, bitterness, you know, unforgiveness toward that person. And that's, that's typical. I would say that's normal for humans to respond that way. But let me share with you a scripture that Paul tells us that will help us to maybe reframe the attack, even that it comes from an odd direction. This is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Paul says, We are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. As difficult as it will be to do, we have to try to keep this in mind especially the closer in relation the attack comes from, the more we have to keep this in mind. We, this is how we resist hate toward our family or bitterness toward our friends or a hard heart toward people that we thought we knew and thought we liked and thought liked us, but man, they were fooling me, weren't they, right? This is how we resist that, is to see the enemy on the surface may be surprising, but the enemy, the real enemy is underneath the surface, and it's not a surprise. That's why we started with the beginning, there will be an attack from the enemy. But the enemy is going to use anyone that he can to get to you. Again, I told you, he doesn't play fair. There are no rules for him. He will use anyone or anything to try to undercut your faith, your belief system, your love for Jesus, your life in him, everything that has to do with him. So we have to see that this is not personal, but spiritual. And I, I'm not saying that's easy, okay? I'll say that again and before we're done. I'm not saying that I can even do that very well all the time because I see the person attacking me and I feel the effects of that attack. 
So I have to try to get myself back into this thing. It's not personal, it's spiritual. But that leads to the third, the third truth to remember from Acts chapter 4, and it's the other side of the same coin. So sometimes the direction of the attack may surprise you, but here's the third truth. The attack is primarily against Jesus. Any attack that you face in your life, when there's any sort of spiritual thing involved at all, the attack is primarily against Jesus. And I had that ellipsis there at the end because there's more to that statement, but I only had so much room for it. But that's the main part. Here's the rest of that statement. I'll give you a second to write it down if you want to write this down. The attack is primarily against Jesus. You're just getting caught in the crossfire. When it comes to spiritual attack against you, the attack is primarily against Jesus. You're just getting caught in the crossfire. Look again at Acts chapter 4, verse 7. They brought in the two disciples and demanded, by what power or in whose name have you done this? Who gave you this authority to say these things? Who gave you this ability to do this miraculous, if it's even real? We'll get to that later, right? We'll, we'll interrogate this lame guy later. It's all a trick, right? Who gave you the power and authority to do this? And these men are not stupid. They're very good attorneys because they know the answer to this question. They probably have overheard some of Peter's sermon out in the square, and then they attack at the right moment, and then they ask him the question they already know the answer to. Who gave you the power and authority to do this? They're trying to get Peter and John to incriminate themselves in this moment. Because it's one thing for Peter and John to be speaking these words to a random crowd of who, who knows who. It's a different thing when the 75 most powerful elite people in your nation corner you in a room, outman 75 to 2, and then put the pressure on, and then you have to recreate the sermon to them. It's different. Stakes are higher. Pressure's on. But, and so what Peter does, we'll get to this next week, uh, Peter gets in, he basically does give a condensed version of the same sermon that he just preached outside to this crowd, to, to these people. But I want to get to the last verse of that and see his answer is very clear. He answers the question directly. Here's what he says, Acts 4, verse 12. Peter says, there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Peter is very clear, very direct, knowing what's at stake, knowing that his life is in the balance here. And John's like, dude, what are you doing? I'm in this too. No, John's with him, okay? But think about this. He doesn't just say, we had power in Jesus' name to heal this man. They did, and he said that. He doesn't just say, Jesus is our long-awaited Messiah. But then he says this. Jesus is the only way to be saved, and you need to be saved. He's telling this to the religious elites who are going to kill him if he says the wrong answer. And he says the wrong answer to them right away, clearly, without hesitation. So he, he made this declaration, and it didn't make his enemies very happy. And can I just encourage you with this? If you make that same declaration with your life, it will not make your enemies happy either. I want to show you this image. I, I, I've been working on it uh, for a little while. So this is patent pending. I haven't copywritten it yet, so please don't steal my idea. I might put it in a book one day. Um, but I've come up, if I'm calling it the Societal Religious Acceptance Funnel. Okay? I know it's a long name. It's kind of clunky. I'll work on that too when I edit this later. Okay? The Societal Religious Acceptance Funnel. This is our society. And so here's the thing. Our culture and society are very 
religiously tolerant, depending upon how religious you are and what religion you are. Okay? Our society will accept way at the top and not as much as we move down. So let's look at it for just a couple, a couple minutes here. So let's start with the skepticism, doubt, atheism. I mean, this isn't just accepted by our culture. It's celebrated as the best possible option. Question everything, believe nothing, commit to no worldview, commit to no standard. There's no actual strict morality. There's no set of rules or standards to which we, by which we sh should live life. There's even a better option or a worse option. It's just whatever I want to do. And so this is what our culture clearly celebrates and champions in our culture. Moving on down to spirituality. This is different but still widely accepted in a in our culture. So you can even put like agnostics in here or the person who says I'm spiritual but not religious. Um, our culture accepts that, openly accepts that worldview, that way of living, that way of thinking. Then we get to the middle here, faith. And I can, you could even include God in there too, faith in God, right? Now, this, this is starting to get a little dicey. So if you're gonna put colors on this, the top two are green lights and then faith in God are gonna be your yellow lights. Culture is going to say, oh, okay, okay, yeah, we, we can talk about faith. If you want to talk about God, yeah, that, yeah we're, we're cool, it's fine, right? We'll tolerate the vagueness of your faith. If you want to just use these vague types of words that are unthreatening, right, and don't pin me down or, or tell me I have to do certain things, we can discuss faith and differences and values and, and all that. That's going to be great. That's going to be cool. Let me give you a couple of examples of this I came across recently. In just a second, I'm going to show you a video clip of an interview. So this guy named Rain Wilson, maybe you know him. I love him. He plays Dwight on The Office, my favorite TV show of all time. So this is not a slam on him. He's just a great example of what we're talking about. Recently, he came out with a new book, which I, I read this week. We'll, I'll read a quote to you from it here in a second. But he's very much into this spirituality, faith, God. He mixes those together. His, that's his worldview. It's his way of living and thinking. Uh, and so I want to show you a quick video clip that kind of went viral a couple weeks ago that explained this idea. It's because it is reality. We are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Who I am and what I am is not my body. It's not even my personality. You know, it's not the trauma I suffered. It's not what I've been through. That there is a little spark of the divine inside of me. There's hard data that shows around mental health and well-being that having serenity, meaning, purpose, a losing of oneself to a transcendent self of the divine increases greatly the quality of our lives. We're a part of something much greater and much more beautiful than ourselves. And in living in that state can greatly enrich your life. So this video went all over the internet a couple weeks ago, uh, shared by a lot of non-Christians and a lot of Christians, which again, let me use the same analogy, if Sadducees and Pharisees get together, you're going to have to do a smell test. So when I see as many shares from very non-religious people as religious people, and it's a religious sort of thing, I'm going to really sniff that really hard and see if it's a brownie or if it belongs in the backyard, you know? <laughs> so a lot of what he said sounds really good. I mean, I, I, in principle, there's a lot of things in that, that I would say, that sounds great. It's better than a lot of other alternatives that we could use to view life. 
but really it's this middle section. It's a bunch of spiritual gobbledygook, coin words, phrases, nonsensical stuff that you just kind of throw together, which he actually talks about in his book. And again, I love the guy. Again, he's, he's on a journey. He's not in the top, the top rung, right? So he believes there's something and he's got his own way of seeing it. So that's, there's something there. But again, it's not what, it's not what Peter and John are dealing with. It's not the, the bottom part of the funnel. That's why he's so widely accepted. Let me read you a couple of quick quotes. I don't have them on the screen, but uh, just from his book. His book's called Soul Boom, if you're interested. S-O-U-L-B-O-O-M, Soul Boom. Um, and here's what he said. These are both in the, the preface of the book. He says, to some, spirituality is completely synonymous with religious practice and organized religion, church, God, and so forth. To others, it can mean rituals involving hallucinogens. To many, because the word spirit is in spirituality, it means that ghosts are involved. To still others, like a model or celebrity, it can mean exorcisms by Swiss shamans. Let me be perfectly clear, he writes. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm like, okay, good. That's good. We're good. Here's what he says. The word spirituality, as the Oxford English Dictionary defines it, means the quality of being concerned with the human spirit or soul as opposed to material or physical things. Then he says, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Later on in that same preface, basically the goal or method of the book, he says, basically, what I'll be doing in this book is throwing a lot of spiritual spaghetti against the wall, and hopefully some of it will stick. Okay? Now, again, he makes a lot of good points in his book, a lot of cultural insights, a lot of good historical insights. He connects a lot of dots, and there's a lot in there that I would, again, but he's widely accepted on a great scale because he's vague in his worldview. It's spirituality, it's faith. He talks about God a lot, but just full disclosure, um, he belongs to the, the Baha'i faith, which if you don't know is kind of an odd offshoot of Islam from a couple hundred years ago, but it's basically an amalgamation of all religions. And that's his, you can clearly see that's his worldview. So he'll quote Jesus, and then he'll quote Confucius, and they're the same. And then, and then he'll quote, you know, the Dalai Lama over here, and then he'll quote this other sage from the fourth century over here, and then he'll quote, you know, the, the, the Koran over here, and it's all, it's all just a jumbled mess. But it's not offensive because it's vague. That's not what Peter and John are doing here. If you're living for Jesus at the bottom of that, that's not what you're doing here. And so that is why we, we see resistance that maybe he would not. There are other celebrities that are very much more vocal in their faith, and they meet much more resistance than he will because they get to the bottom of the funnel. They get to the bottom of what's accepted by society in our religion. Society will decreasingly trust and accept the top four of that funnel, but as soon as you get to the bottom, that's when you meet rejection, opposition, and attack. But here's the question. I, mean, I got a long way to, you know, to get to this point. But what we're saying is, is the attack that you're facing primarily against you as a follower of Jesus? No, you're just getting caught in the crossfire. The attack is against Jesus. That's why they want to know in Acts 4, who gave you this authority? I, I don't care about you guys. You're just pawns in the game here. Who told you you could do that? Who gave you the authority to do that? Who, whose teaching do you follow? And they say clearly it's Jesus. Society's not rejecting me as a Christian as much as they're rejecting Jesus. So let's, Jesus said this would happen. So John 15, we'll read this and then we'll, we'll close for a few more minutes here. John 15, verse 18, Jesus says to his disciples, if the world hates you, remember, it hated me first. It's kind of like he called shotgun on suffering, okay? Me first, they hated me first. 
He says the world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of this world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. They will do all of this to you because of me. For they have rejected the one who sent me. So if you're ever mocked or ridiculed or ostracized or attacked for your faith in Jesus, yes, you are feeling the effects of that attack, but Jesus is the actual target. That may be, again, the other side of the coin to help you see that the physical enemy is not your true enemy and you're not their actual target. There are other forces at play here that we can't see that are super nature, supernatural, that are really drawing all of this out. And that's why more than any other religion, ideology, worldview, Christianity is attacked. Historically speaking, that has always been the case, and even now it is still the case. So for instance, you can burn a Bible no problem, right? There was even in Boston a couple weeks ago, there's, I don't know if you heard about it, a big convention called SatanCon. You read that? A bunch of Church of Satan people got together. One of the things that they did was rip Bibles apart, right? And that's fine. We can do that. But you better not touch any other religious book. They belong in a museum on a pedestal because they're historical artifacts. No, no, no. We were first. Like, we, we, what are you talking about? But that's just because Jesus is the target. He's the target. You can defame Christian artwork, but again, you, you better not touch any other religious artwork artifacts. You can't, they're off limits. They're behind, behind ropes, right? It's different because Jesus is the one under attack. Have you ever noticed that it's the name of the Father and the Son who are used for curse words? And not any other God from any other religion are used for curse words? I just think that's weird. Like if you use another God's name, even slightly in a crude joke, you can, you can go to prison for that. Right? But it, every day, all the time, we, the Father and Son, their names are used all the time without even thinking about it, def defamed all the time. It's because Jesus is the one under attack. Our culture will accept the other parts of the funnel, but whenever you get to the exclusivity of Jesus, as Peter says, the only way, that's when the attacks happen. And again, we as Christians, we're going to feel the effects of that. We're going to notice that. But the target of the attack is Jesus because Jesus is too exclusive. He's too offensive. He doesn't accept. He's mean. He's judgmental. He's hateful. And so if, I, if I'm on Team Jesus, then I get thrown in with that. And I'm happy to be thrown in with Team Jesus. I'm happy to be thrown in with Jesus, okay? This is not a complaint. It's just an observation that you know all too well. So if I'm going to be on Team Jesus, I have to expect this will happen. So when, again, when Peter and John are cornered and outnumbered, um, and they're asking whose name, they just clearly say Jesus. So let me say this one thing about this, and then we'll move on and close for just a second. I don't want to get too nitpicky here, but, so if you want to talk about your faith, by all means, please do. Talk, share, talk about your faith. You can discuss spirituality. That's great. I would even say, talk about God all the time. However, as often as possible, point everything to Jesus. Because again, we're not trying to be intentionally vague, so we're accepted. We're not trying to play it safe. We're also not trying to unintentionally be vague to confuse people and conflate what we believe with what other people believe that may not be the same. We want to be exclusively, I'm team Jesus. 
Peter didn't say, well, God gave us this power. Well, Jesus is God, so technically, yes, but Jesus did this. And that's why they're, in the, they're under the attack that they are. As a Christian, may we stand openly and declare our allegiance to Jesus. But as we do, remember, you will be attacked, sometimes from directions that you don't see coming. But that's part of this thing. And they're not after you. <laughs> they're after Jesus. One more thing. I know I'm, I know I'm going late today, but... Uh, one more scripture to close, and this is maybe the most important thing that I'm going to say, so I hate that it's this late. So don't, don't zone out. Wake up! Okay. Here's the last thing. I know that I tried to encourage you. Maybe you're like not encouraged. Maybe, maybe you're like, oh my goodness, I don't think I want to be a Christian anymore. Okay, I was thinking about it, and now I'm not. Or maybe I was a Christian, but I don't know if I want to deal with that. Okay? Here's the thing. Here's the final thing I want to say. Uh, don't fear. Okay? Don't fear. Matthew 10, again, I thought I had, one, I had one more scripture I forgot about. Matthew 10, verse 26. Jesus says this to his disciples again. Don't be afraid of those who threaten you. For the time is coming when everything that is covered will be revealed and all that is secret will be made known to all. What I tell you now in darkness, shout abroad when daybreak comes. What I whisper in your ear, shout from the housetops for all to hear. That's what Peter and John are doing in Acts 4. Then Jesus again says, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Then Jesus says this, what is the price of two sparrows? One copper coin, they're worthless. But not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. There will be times when you will be tested because of your faith in Jesus. And Maybe I shouldn't say this, but I'm feeling spicy right now, guys, okay? And I'm not going to say it. I'm not that spicy. Okay, I'll say, okay, disappointment in the room. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. If you're not facing some kind of opposition at all ever, maybe you want to push the throttle on Jesus a little bit harder, okay? I'm not saying you've got to go live in a third world country and have your head cut off and be shot and on a on an Instagram live. I'm not saying you have to go to great lengths to get yourself into trouble. I'm just saying that if you never find yourself ever even feeling slightly uncomfortable, but push the pedal on Jesus a little bit more until we get into a rhythm here. That's all I'm saying. Hope that wasn't too much for you. Here's the thing. People will laugh at your faith in Jesus. They will mock you. They will roll their eyes at you. Uh, they will try to label you things that you're not because you belong to Team Jesus. The culture will say that you're weak-minded, you're closed-minded because you belong to Jesus. Resistance may come from unexpected sources. Your family won't buy in or understand. Your friends will think you've changed or you're crazy. Your colleagues will disassociate from you. Maybe even your job promotion will be on the line because of your faith in Jesus. Maybe even relationships will fracture because of your faith in Jesus. Maybe you will find yourself in physically dangerous situations at times because of your faith in Jesus. Despite all of that, Jesus says, don't fear. And I'm like, come on, Jesus, really? Like, that's not fair to ask me that. I mean, I'm going to try really hard. I'm going to do the best I can. But seriously, like, do you know how hard this is right now? Do you know what the pressure I'm under right now? Do you know what's at risk here? But he says, don't fear. I'm sure physically at some point, Peter and John are kind of like, oh, I don't know. This is really dangerous. We're out man 75 to 1. They can kill us and nobody will ever know we ever existed, right? But they didn't let fear stop them. And that's where we'll continue on in the coming weeks here in Acts 4. So again, I'm not saying this is easy to do. I'm just saying Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't fear. Don't let fear stop you from being team Jesus. 
Don't let fear stop you from speaking about the powerful name of Jesus. Don't let, them, don't let fear keep you from pointing people to Jesus. This is what we do when the enemy attacks. We know it's coming, even when we can't see it coming, but then we don't fear because Jesus is the target, but he's also our protection. He's our joy. He's our reward. And so we trust in him and live for him. It's Jesus. Let's pray. God, no one wants to be attacked. No one's looking to pick a fight. No one wants to start trouble. That's not what we're talking about today. We just want to follow Jesus. And so we know from Scripture and probably from experience that if we follow Jesus, we're going to make some enemies along the way. We know that if we follow Jesus, we automatically have a spiritual enemy who's out to get us with a singular goal of our destruction. And we probably know from experience that the enemy will use anyone or anything to try to undercut our lives of faith in Jesus. So when these attacks do come, in whatever form they come, at whatever level we experience them, may we see clearly. May we see that the enemy is not that person across the room or across the table or sitting next to me, but the enemy is spiritual. The, the enemy is really Satan. They're just a pawn in the game. May we also see that we're not the actual target, but Jesus is the target. But he can take it. He defeated death and sin, so he's fine. And he tells us to not fear, so we'll be fine. Now, we might actually face pain or uncertainty or discomfort. We might be abandoned. We might be called names. We might be physically harmed even in some cases. But you are still our great reward. We will still do our best to not let fear keep us from talking about Jesus, living for Jesus, pointing people to Jesus. And the reason is because it's the people the enemy is using that need to hear about Jesus the most. May our dig in, may our desire to follow Jesus faithfully, even in the midst of attack and uncertainty and fear and danger, may that help people to see Jesus for who he really is. He's worth fighting for. He's worth living for. He's worth losing everything for. Help us to be that light to those even coming against us. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of Jesus, that he changes lives. And so I thank you for the opportunity that you're going to give us to boldly proclaim the name of Jesus. Help us to not fear, even in the midst of opposition, even in the midst of attack. May we hold fastly and firmly to Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.